0: Hello, and welcome to the episode, Israeli Chutzpah. You know, I really wanted to call this episode, Giving the World the Finger, or The New Jew on a most serious note. And in all honesty, all three of those uh, titles would fit the description of what I want to tell you about today. So, just two days ago, on September 22nd, 2016, Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, stood at the General Assembly of the UN and gave a speech. In his speech, or at least the beginning of his speech, was such that he basically said to the world nations that they are a joke, that this UN is a joke. As a matter of fact, he stood in front of the UN and basically showed them the finger. Now, not literally, but he had said, for instance, that of the all UN condemnations of last year, which is 2015, Twenty condemnations were against Israel, while three, only three, condemnations were about the rest of the world. He also pointed out that the Human Rights Commission of the UN is just a big joke. As a matter of fact, with all the brutal abuse of women all around the world, the only nation in the world that was mentioned at the UN General Assembly was, he sa- as he said, you guess it, Israel. Now, I'm not sure how attentive the world representatives at the UN were to Netanyahu's speech. I will, however, tell you that Israelis were attentive, and Israeli society at large liked the speech. They liked it because Netanyahu represents a new Jew, the new Israeli, the Israeli whose culture it is to not stand by idly, not be quiet, but rather speak their mind. Now, I have to give you the context for this. I always believe that uh, context is very important to understanding matters, not only in Israel, but the world at large. And in all these episodes that I will be speaking, I promise that every time I will give you the context. And the context here, I think, uh, would be best called a revolution. A revolution in the Jewish world. And that revolution really occurred um, after two major events took place in Europe. In Europe of the late 1800s and early 1900s. The first event took place in 1894 in Paris, France. The event was actually a trial of a Jewish military artillery captain named Alfred Dreyfus. Now in 1894, late 1800s in general, if you had said the word a Jewish military captain, most people would turn their head. What do you mean? Jews aren't allowed in the army. You may realize that Jews during the middle ages and all the way up to the 1800s in Western Europe in places like France were not allowed in the military. They were not allowed certain jobs. They were basically second class citizens. It wasn't until the emancipation that created equality within the population of Western Europe mostly and enabled people of religions such as Judaism, Islam, and of course different forms of Christianity to be equal citizens and no longer to be second-class citizens. In this case, Alpha Dreyfus, who was an achiever, became a military captain, but not for long. And the reason was because he was framed. He was framed for espionage in favor of Germany and, of course, against his home country, France, because how could a Jew be loyal? There really was an espionage, uh, and there really were secrets traded over to the Germans. There was a French cleaning lady that actually worked the German embassy and really worked for the French Secret Service who found documentation handed over to the Germans. But there was no proof this was Alfred Dreyfus. And the attorney general at the time decided it was Dreyfus that was the spy because the writing, the handwriting of the documents that were turned over to the Germans looked like Dreyfus's handwriting, according to the French military. As the trial went on, it became very clear that Dreyfus had nothing to do with the case and that this was just one big frame. Dreyfus was found guilty and spent years on an island that was called Devil's Island. But what was shocking mostly in this whole trial was the fact that there were French mobs outside of the trial room that represented much of French public opinion when they called for death. They didn't call for death to the spy. They didn't even call death to the Jew. It was plural. It was death to the Jews. At the trial, many reporters attended. This was the trial of the century. Among the reporters was a young reporter by the name of Theodor Herzl. Now, open up a parenthesis here because I will have an episode, an entire episode, just on Herzl, who was one of the most fascinating people that lived at the time period. Herzl, as a young reporter, heard this yell and scream in demand of basically lynching this Jew or maybe even lynching the Jews. Now, Herzl was a man who actually was um, a liberal at heart and thought that the Jews at large in Europe should integrate into the larger population. And this trial turns his opinion 180 degrees in the demand that the Jews need to get out of Western Europe and to get out of Europe at large and actually have their own sovereign state. Herzl is so influenced by this frame of a Jew and, and pluralistic, a frame of the Jewish world at large, of being unloyal and not fit to live with us, that he started what today is called modern political Zionism, the idea of the Jews returning to their homeland. Less than two years after the Dreyfus affair, Herzl writes a pamphlet, a book, called The Jewish State, which, if I was to use modern day lingo, becomes viral where the Jews are called to create a sovereign homeland for the Jewish people. So the Dreyfus Affair served as the first major event to call for a Jewish revolution, again in creation of a Jewish homeland. The second event was a horrific pogrom, which was the looting, the raping, and the murder of Jews in a city called Kishinev in 1903 in the Russian Empire. The spark for the pogrom uh, started when there was a Christian child that was found murdered. The Jews were immediately blamed for this, and furthermore, the Jews were blamed for murdering the child and using his blood to making matzah for Passover. Uh, If you've never heard this before, this is actually not the first time the Jews were blamed for killing Christian children and using their blood to make matzah. This was called the blood libels that happened throughout the Middle Ages. And, believe it or not, you still hear that kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric in modern day. In the Kishinev pogrom, about 49 people were murdered, hundreds of people were injured, countless women were raped, and about 1,500 homes were badly damaged. Um, there was an attempt to understand what happened and why it happened. And for that purpose, the Historical Jewish Commission sent a representative to interview some of the survivors. Uh, That uh, representative was named Chaim Nachman Bialik, who was also a poet and ultimately he became the National Poet of Israel years later. Chaim Nachman Bialik writes a poem as a result of what he learned about the pogrom and that poem is called The City of Slaughter. And in that poem Chaim Nachman Bialik is furious. And who's he furious at? He's actually furious at the Jews. As a matter of fact, he doesn't give a name to those that committed the murders, the Cossacks. He just refers to them as the butchers. He is, as I said, furious at the Jews. Now, understand something. Almost every single Israeli high school student in the secular school system studies this poem. And I must tell you that the Israeli kids, when they study the poem, they are just astounded I remember that uh, when I um, studied that poem and read it, and the poem is as long as a book, but one of the chapters really got to me when I read about how the butchers broke into a Jewish home, immediately grabbed the women, threw them down onto the floor, and violently raped them. The reason this was so shocking was because Bialy goes on to tell us that the men were huddled in the corner, peeking and praying to God. God, please stop this. God, what do we do to deserve this? And Bialik says in his poem, you call yourselves Jews? The sons of Maccabees? You are dogs with tails between your legs. Basically, Bialik says the Jews didn't have to finger in order to defend themselves. Now, at this point, I must tell you that Bialik could also be telling us a lot of mythology. In other words, there was Jewish resistance, and Jews did fight. And historical chronicles talk about the fact that Jews did defend their families, that Bialik has a purpose. And the purpose is to create this revolution that will shake Jews out of their apathy and make them stand up for themselves and perhaps leave this area of Eastern Europe, the Russian Empire, and go and create their own homeland. And Bialik goes on to tell us, because he really wants to shake our world, that after the raping was done, And the women were actually still alive. The men, which were brothers, which were husbands, which were fathers, the ones that were kneeling down in the corner and praying for God to stop this, who were relieved to see that they remained alive, that the Cossacks didn't kill them, ran to the rabbi. They were relieved to see that the rabbi was alive. And the first question that came out of their mouth was, Rabbi, are we still married to our women? Have they been defiled? Are they still kosher to be with? Can we sleep with them? Now, Bialik doesn't use all those words, but that's the interpretation of that uh, that question to the rabbi. Bialik wants to shake our world. He wants to say, stop, never again, get out, do something about it, stand up for yourself. You know what's interesting? I have a set of grandparents who actually came from Poland who were pretty much in the same situation as in the Russian empire. And they were from an orthodox, a very religious family, both of them, around their teenage years, decided to leave Poland, come to what then was called Palestine, and later on became Israel, and dry the swamps and become the Zionist pioneers. Um, they were affected by the poem that Bialik wrote, and so were many other Jews, and again, this was the second event that led to a Jewish revolution and the desire to get out and to build something new. And this is interesting because 97% of all those Jews that migrated out of Eastern Europe and the Russian Empire, which by the way stood at one million Jews. In other words, 970,000 Jews actually went to America. Only 30,000 Jews came to Israel. Now 30,000 Jews and uh, joining thousands of Jews that were already in Israel, and thousands more that will come from Russia and Poland and Ukraine and, and also Western Europe were joined by other Jews that came from Arab countries, from North Africa, from Yemen, from Iraq. In 1948, about 650,000 Jews were living in Israel and then it became possible for a sovereign state to be established. Now, a sovereign state in a very undeveloped Middle East with a hostile population, with very poor conditions, um, food allocation, and other trouble had two major goals. Um, One was to keep the population in the country. As a matter of fact, many people in Israel at the beginning stages of the state, even before Israel became a state, left because of these terrible, harsh conditions. The second goal was to draw Jewish migrants to Israel. And in order to do so, you need to create... Uh, mythologies. One mythology um, had to do with the fact that, and they strongly believe this, that Jews outside of their own homeland, Jews outside of their own sovereign power were ultimately weak. And this weakness was only, not only displayed by the pogroms that took place in Russia, but ultimately the strongest, largest sign of Jewish weakness was, of course, the Holocaust. The second mythology that was needed was a mythology of great heroes and strength. Um, A role model, people who you can emulate, of course, Jews who you can emulate. Now, if you're going to emulate Jews, if you want want a role model, it can't be a role model that's outside of Israel, because then you should live outside of Israel, but rather in Israel itself. In other words, you need a mythology to rebel against, which is a mythology of Jewish weakness, And you need a mythology of a role model of Jewish strength. There are two sites in Israel that directly correlate to these two mythologies. As a matter of fact, these two sites are two of the three most visited sites in Israel. The first is Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, in Jerusalem. Now, Yad Vashem, when you walk into it, um, you go through an avenue of trees called the Avenue of the Righteous Gentiles. And then in front of you is a very large sculpture that was made by a sculptor named Nathan Rappaport as early as 1947, which means only two years after World War II was over. When you take a close look at the sculpture, you see that one side of it has these frail, old, or very young, or pregnant women, uh, Jews, of course, walking actually to their death. Behind them, if you look carefully, you can see helmets and bayonets of the Nazis leading them to their death, and when you look at that, at that piece of the sculpture, all you can think about is sadness and defeat and just really a march to your death. The other side of the sculpture, there's another piece of the sculpture which is a little disconnected, is actually vertical, so it's much taller, and it has um, Jews fighting. In the middle is a man with his jacket open, his ribcage is showing, and he's holding a grenade in his hand. Then on one side of him is another man or woman, it's hard to tell, and it's not really relevant, holding a gun with many bullets. Uh, Below this middle uh, figure of the man is a younger man with a big knife in his hand. And when you look at that piece of the sculpture, all you can think about is strength and defiance and uprising. And there's a huge dichotomy of the two of them. By the way, if that sculpture was going to be made today, it would never be made in this way. Because it gives a very clear message that there is a weak Jew, that's of course outside of Israel, and there's a strong Jew, which of course is in Israel itself. You may be surprised to hear this, and it's disturbing, but the Holocaust was used by Israeli society to show ultimate weakness. Now, that's not the surprising part. The surprising part is that the Holocaust survivors, those that actually had numbers on their arms because they survived Auschwitz, would wear long sleeves in Israel so that it wouldn't be seen because they were embarrassed. I remember interviewing once a Holocaust survivor named Dora Roth. And Dora, who was a young teenage girl, survived the Holocaust. She was actually shot four times by the Nazis in a camp right before the Russians came in to liberate, and she survived it, and the Russians actually nursed her back to life. She tells me a story that um, after arriving in Israel, a young, very beautiful uh, girl, she was taking a taxi from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This is one of those taxis that sits 10 people and you pay a share. And when she walked on, she was asking the driver something, of course, she had an accent, and there was another woman sitting in a seat who asked her, where are you from? So Dora, expecting great sympathy, said, I... I am from the Holocaust. I survived the Holocaust. And the woman who was born in Israel or born in the area called Palestine, of course, at the time, looked at her and said, oh, you're one of those that went like sheep to the slaughter? Uh, Dora was shocked, um, but that was Israelis. Israelis were so important to them to build that strength, to be undefeated, that they used Holocaust and Holocaust survivors as the example of what not to be. We, the Israelis said, are going to be exactly the opposite of those people that were being led to their death. We are going to fight. And of course, the slogan of never again was extremely strong with the idea of building the new new Jew. The second mythology, as I mentioned before, was one of uh, great strength, a role model, a Jewish hero. The third most visited site in Israel is actually Masada. Masada is an ancient desert fort that was built uh, by King Herod and is famous because of the fact that after a very large and very bloody revolution 2,000 years ago in the first century of the Common Era, when the Jews actually took on the Roman Empire, Masada served as the last stronghold to fall to the Romans. The Jews of Masada decided, and whether this was a collective decision or um, the decision of the leadership that was carried out by a small group of people, that's to be argued, but that's not the content of this episode. In any case, they decided they were gonna commit suicide, they were gonna kill themselves, rather than to give in to the yoke of the Romans. Now understand, when modern Israel looked at Masada, Israeli society said, look, just like Masada, was surrounded by the Romans with the Jews on top of the hill with no other choice but to take their own lives, we Israel are surrounded by the Arab world and then on the west side of us is the Mediterranean Sea. And Arab propaganda was such in the beginning, beginning of the existence of the state of Israel and really until this very day in some of the Arab world that Israel or Israelis will be pushed into the sea. We are in the same situation as those Jews in Masada. However, Masada shall not fall again. In other words, this time, the new modern Jew is gonna be successful, is gonna be strong. The warriors of Masada were chosen as the role model, not for the suicide they committed, but rather for their ideology, their conviction, basically their strength. The top of the mountain of Masada became a shrine to ascend to. As a matter of fact, our youth movements would make their way up the snake path, as it's called, to the top of the mountain and uh, have ceremonies there. Our elite fighting units, like the paratroopers, would have their swear-in ceremony uh, at the top of Masada. And Bnei mitzvahs were celebrated as well at the synagogue of Masada. So, the new Jew that defied weakness and idealized strength, only 19 years after the establishment of Israel, had proof of their success. That proof came in what was called the 1967 Six-Day War. In only six days, the Israeli Defense Forces defeated the Egyptian, Syrian, Jordanian, and Iraqi army. The Israelis turned around, patted themselves on the back, and said, we did it. We created that brand new Jew. Not only Israelis, but Jews around the world, in America, and elsewhere, wore a Jewish star, and they wore it outside the shirt for the world to see. Israeli society has matured since. Holocaust is not looked upon as weakness. Jews who were the victims of the Holocaust are not looked upon as weak. As a matter of fact, a rebellion such as the Warsaw Ghetto Rebellion is emphasized in how the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto held off the uh, German army for longer than the Polish army held off the German army during the beginning of World War II. Masada is no longer a place of role model Masada is no longer a place of great heroes. The paratroopers do not swear in at Masada anymore. As a matter of fact, they go to the Western Mall for that. The youth movements no longer have ceremonies on top of the mountain. And most Israelis also do not hold bar and bat mitzvahs at Masada. Israelis realize that Masada was actually a place of great extremists. But when the United Nations organizations condemn Israel more than any other country in the world put together, when well, the United Nations organizations such as UNESCO, which is supposed to be in charge of heritage sites around the world, says that the Jewish state has no connection to their Temple Mount, when they single out Israel on human rights issues more than any other country in the world, that is when the Prime Minister of Israel has the audacity, the gall, the chutzpah, to stand in front of the world and to say, come to your senses, you are dealing with a brand new Jew. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Sand and Silicon and rate us on iTunes. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet at Itai Tours or visit our website, ItaiTours.com. That's I-T-A-I-T-I-U-R-S